Welcome to the Tuesday Night IBS Podcast. I'm your host, Johanna Revy. The podcast connects patients and providers with information and education about the diagnosis and treatment of IBS and related diagnoses. Each month, we feature a new episode with guest experts in the field of motility and neurogastroenterology who share the latest science and data for diagnosing and treating these conditions, as well as conversation about their impact on a patient's quality of life. Just a reminder, the information provided in this podcast is for informational and educational use only and should never be substituted for medical advice. Always work with your doctor to diagnose and treat your IBS symptoms effectively. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Tuesday night IBS podcast. We're so pleased to welcome another expert guest with us for the month of January. And this month, we're welcoming Dr. Miranda Van Tilburg. Uh, Dr. Van Tilburg is uh, a professor of medicine and vice chair of research at Marshall University, Joan C. Edwards School of Medicine and is an expert in the area of um, abdominal pain in children and adolescents. And she's published many an article and done a lot of research on this topic. Um, so we're really excited to have her join us today as we discuss these really important topics as it relates to children and adolescents. Um, you know, we usually talk about adult GI care. We forget a little bit about the kids and, uh, that's that's not okay. So we're spending our, our month of January focusing on that and, and the differences between that type of pain in pediatrics versus adult care. So welcome, Dr. Van Tilburg. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here and I'm really excited. We're talking about some of my favorite topics, which is kids and teens and helping them because as you said, they need help too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, can you, let's start a little bit about talking a little bit about your work and how you got started in this, you know, what, what prompted you to look at pediatrics as opposed to adult care? Was there something that stood out to you in, in your beginning research career that, that caused you to focus on this? Yes. Yeah, so oddly enough, going all the way back to my PhD, I did a PhD on adult homesickness. So people who move away from home and then miss home. And one of the things we found is that people are often complain about feeling physically ill. And two of the most common symptoms were abdominal pain and stomach ache and uh, headache. So I got sort of pulled into this field of medical psychology. I wanted to know more. And I came to the U.S. because I'm originally from the Netherlands and started work with um, Bill Whitehead, who is one of the major people in this field. And um, he was doing mostly work in adults. And as soon as I started, but, but some work with parents of children with abdominal pain. And as soon as I started to work in this area and my previous work had all been with adults, I quickly found out that once you have irritable bowel syndrome when you're adult, it's basically for a lifetime. It might, you know, wax and wane for some people, but it is something you will be struggling with for a long time. And when we looked at kids and, and preteens, we would see that these within about five years, two thirds or so of these children had no pain anymore. And 
I, and in the same time, we would see this research asking people about what their symptoms, their IBS symptoms, and when they start. And a lot of people, although they didn't qualify for a diagnosis of aortic bowel syndrome when they were kids, they certainly had a lot of stomach issues when they had, were kids. And so to me, it just seemed that that's where I needed to be. There were so few studies back then on children. You know, there was some more work being done on adults. It was still a sort of young, burgeoning field. But I think it could count on one hand the number of people that were actually doing studies in children. And I thought if we want to prevent this, I mean, prevention is always better than curing. We want to prevent this. We need to start with children. And that's how I got into it. Because I, not because I, that was my main expertise, but I just saw the need. And it's, really been incredible to see how the field has grown, how much more we know now, how many more treatments are available. There really weren't any evidence-based treatments back then for children. We have some now, and it's still behind the adult world, but it's not as bad as it used to be. And, And that's exciting. It's exciting to see that grow and to see how much more we can do now to help um, kids and teens. And you know, who knows how many, how many adults now have grown exactly. up not having IBS. We don't know that, but, it, yeah, but that's yeah. the goal. That's great. That's really interesting. Okay. So let's, um, let's delve into our questions. Um, you know, you, you have done so much work in this area of pain syndromes and PEDS. Um, so are there clear differences in the development of abdominal pain? I mean, we, you talked a little bit about adults having, you know, pain as children, but is it still recognized in children as a dysregulation between the brain and the gut? Or there, are there other factors, um, in children that kind of leads to this development? So yes, we are still um, seeing it as a like regulation between the brain and the gut in children as well. Okay, and um, we don't have as much evidence for that. Again, the studies are sort of missing a lot of times. We have some studies that agree with what we know from adults. So we we sort of you know that's what the assumption we're working on now as we're developing more knowledge. Really interesting with children is that we do know that um, when you're very very young. Um, you know, sort of the first six months of life, we are born with a premature brain because otherwise we wouldn't be able to pass birth canal. So our brains develop and our pain system still develops. And we know from studies from way, way back that um, child circumcision was very normal to do. And it was done without pain medication because it was thought that babies really didn't feel pain. Well, we know now that that really screwed up with the development of the nerval pathways for pain. And these kids who grew up not having their pain controlled when they were that young have increased um, problems with chronic pain and all kinds of pain later on in life. So there's something just very early on that that is really, really important, right? But coming and that already shows you there's a brain gut interaction right there, right? It's something going on with our nervous system um, and how it develops. Now in children, the really interesting thing is very young children, like toddlers, they won't be able to tell you I am in pain. (laughs) And so most of the ways that we know that maybe something's going on, it's because they stop doing certain behaviors. So they might not poop 
because it's painful and they decide they will not do it anymore. Or they might stop eating because it's painful and they decide they won't do it anymore. And it takes sometimes a while for us in the field to realize, hey, we have all of these kids who are not pooping, they're not eating, what's going on? To realize that maybe they actually have gut discomfort and that's why they're not eating, for example. That has taken us a long way to realize that. I've, I've noticed that development during my time as a researcher. So we have that problem. And then as kids are getting about four or five years old, you know, they're, they're sort of going more kindergarten, early school age years. They certainly can tell you they're in pain, but they're very not very good about telling you where exactly, uh, when, the frequency of it. And they can't really describe it. You, you Just for fun of it, ask a five-year-old if the pain is stabbing or if it's hot or, you know, things like throbbing. And they'll go like, I have no clue what you're talking about. So we have, you know, just sort of having all of these different developmental stages, it becomes really important for us to say, hey, how do we even know they're in pain? And uh, and if the pain changes, yes or no. So they're, they're sort of unreliable reporters when in early ages doesn't mean they're not in pain, doesn't mean that we shouldn't treat it, which is assumed for a long time. And unfortunately, it's still assumed today. Like we see a lot of kids being undertreated, for example, when they undergo surgeries um, or have painful injuries and they're just not getting the treatment that they should be getting. Like we, we really haven't seen much of an opioid crisis in teens. And why is that? It's because we were probably under-prescribing them, <laughs> you know, opioids and still are. Um, so so there, there's still sort of this, this idea of children, you know, um, not feeling pain as much. And if they do report pain, and this is the most worrisome one for me in at all, is that if they do report pain, then automatically we often go to, hmm, unless I can see the hurt, but even if they are, you know, even if they skimmed their knee, it, they're probably just trying to get attention. They're probably right. just faking it. It is so common we do that with children. And it's so far from the truth. We have evidence showing that children almost never fake pain. And if they do it, they try it one time. It's very obvious to the parents and the kids usually don't, <laughs> don't continue doing it. You know, there's a whole idea that children will... Uh, report pain because they're trying to, you know, get something or get out from something is is not true. The pain is there. Absolutely 100% true. Then please believe them. So that stigma around pain that we see so often in adult care, um, particularly in functional GI, um, where there is no organic evidence to um, be responsible or point to the pain, um, it begins in, in childhood then. So there's really no clear line of when we stop believing and start believing um, versus adult and peds. It's, it's, it's evident in childhood as well. Absolutely. You see it just as much in childhood and perhaps even more shows yeah. how we undertreat pain, right? So, so right. you assume there's less pain or, and probably, you know, this, Children are old enough about age six or so to tell you they're in pain or maybe even age five, and we're still under-treating their pain. So yeah. we, we're making assumptions and it starts very, very early. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious, and I don't know if you have an answer for it, but um, you know, for for you mentioned preschool up to maybe kindergarten being really 
unable to give a clear description of when they are experiencing pain, but evident in their behaviors. And I'm wondering, you know, if you, if you had say a three or four year old who suddenly stops eating normally, or isn't having as many bowel movements and maybe as a little fussier around mealtime or other evidence that might be something might be going on, but they can't describe it. How would one go about doing that evaluation to kind of determine, you know, are they in pain? Are they experiencing abdominal pain or some sort of GI distress? Right. So um, some children you can ask, a lot of them not. It's just too early for them. Um, Usually it comes down to a good medical evaluation to see that there's nothing else going on. So, you know, we see this a lot with with kids transitioning from infants transitioning to solid foods. That's a very common uh, time period where kids stop eating. And you need to do a good evaluation just of, of, you know, is their tongue working correctly? Do they know how to swallow? Do they know all of these things? And luckily we have now specialized feeding teams that have speech pathologists, that have psychologists, that have GI people and pulmonary people to really figure out what's wrong with with the child and why the child is not eating. So it's not automatically that we assume, oh, it must be because they're in GI pain, right? We're we're looking Mm -hmm. at all of these things. But more and more these teams where they used to maybe focus more on if there was nothing outwardly medically wrong with the child and the child really was very fussy around eating, very picky, you know, losing weight. Often we had, we assumed that that was because of the parent child relationship. A mom was doing something or dad was doing something wrong during eating. And we could see that because we would videotape it and oh boy, was there a lot going wrong during eating? Well, of course, this child absolutely refuses to eat day after day after day after day. A lot's going to go wrong because you're going to get desperate to get them to take a bite. Yeah, so parents' behavior might be a reaction instead of like a cause. And now more and more GI people are added to the team to figure out, is this maybe constipation? Is this maybe reflux? You know, is this maybe visceral hypersensitivity? So we're, we're, it it takes a medical team to figure it out, basically. Yes. Some some might be able to tell you they throw up in the mouth, for example, right? And and so that could be good and it might be why they're not eating. So yeah. um, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I, I, my son had feeding issues very early on and we, you know, by the time he was four or five, we ended up in one of those feeding clinics with that multidisciplinary care team. And it was very much, um, beneficial towards him and towards us, my husband and I, you know, it's so much stress around mealtime when your child refuses to eat and there's nothing you can do or say that makes that happen. And when you force it, there's, you know, regurgitation and vomiting and crying and just so much stress that's not necessary. Um, so I, I definitely can appreciate that, um, that information. Okay. More common than you would think, (laughs) you know, there's so many people that I've figured out, have, for example, fecal or fecal incontinence in the parents and, and constipation and the parents are not looking for medical help because they just think that the kids are, again, you're being sort of like, I don't want to go to the bathroom. I'm just going to poop in my pants. I have no problem with this. When the real, 
really the kid is very distressed about having the bowel movements because it's painful or because they've had so many, you know, people being mad at them for having bowel movements. They go like, we're not doing this again because everybody gets mad when I do it. So they get what we call overflow constipation. It's a little bit away from the pain, but it just shows you how we, we as parents and medical healthcare providers can misinterpret symptoms and then, you know, sort of put a meaning behavioral. on it. Yeah. yeah. And in the meantime, something else is completely going on. And these children are just young enough, too young to actually tell us, no, I'm not wanting to have a bowel movements because it, it's really big and it's hard and it's painful when I do. So I'm not having one. So yeah, yeah. sometimes that's hard to distinguish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in regards to children and chronic pain, I mean, not just abdominal pain, but just other chronic pain syndromes, um, have you seen any evidence of an increase in reporting of pain in children and adolescents during the past 18, 19 months of COVID, um, maybe due to lack of access to management because of COVID or um, even COVID infection itself causing additional pain syndromes or chronic pain conditions? Um, you know, I've seen some evidence of that, but there's still a lot of unknowns in some of the literature. Any yeah. ideas about that? Um, oddly enough, some of the studies have shown that these kids were doing better during the pandemic, at least early on in the pandemic. We're still waiting for, you know, now that we've gone through it for two years and it's more of a chronic stressor, what that does. But early on in the pandemic, so for ch think about children, when they're stressed out, their first buffer is their parents, right? And so right. we know from studies for a long time that the stress reaction really is mediated by the parents. If the parents are very stressed out, the kids could be very stressed out. But if the parent makes everything sort of like, it's fine, it's okay, children can go through immensely upsetting events like a hurricane wiping out your whole city and not be stressed. So, so what happened early on the pandemic is that school closed and a lot of parents were at home. And so the stressors of being at school, being exposed to you know bullying, doing your work on time, racism, whatever was going on, disappeared for a lot of kids. And then the parents were at home, so it was great they had their buffer right there. And so early on, we saw that actually there was a decrease. And we see this with children um, normally during normal years when we, we um, look at, at abdominal pain and how much they complain about abdominal pain, how much visits we get for abdominal pain, that in the summer, it sort of disappears. This is really big dip in the summer. And then it, and it goes up again during the school year. And, and sort of, you know, as a joke, we often say like, wow, school's really bad for children, right? Because we see this, but it's probably because, well, first of all, it's stress, right? That might be reduced, but there's also other things you don't do or do during the summer. So you might eat very differently when you're at home than when you're in school, right? You have more time to eat. You can eat other things. You probably have different sleep schedules. And we know that school often doesn't align with sleep schedules specifically for teens, you know, and there might be uh, less infections, right? If you're, if you're home from school, so we were home from school for COVID, but it also meant that we had a lot less flu. We had a lot less, you know, rotavirus. We had a lot less other infections that can affect your gut and then maybe lead to post-infectious um, IBS or post-infectious pain. All of that was taken away. So initially we saw kids actually doing better. 
I will predict that probably over time, we'll probably, with the chronic stress that we're seeing, we'll probably see an uptick of abdominal pain because we know that there's a direct relationship between, you know, stressful events, and particularly in children who maybe during normal circumstances do pretty okay and can deal with the pain and it's not all that bad, but then when it becomes really stressful and it's specifically chronic stress over long periods of time, we'll probably see increases. That That's what I'm thinking, but I'll have to wait yeah. for the data. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah, it will be, it will be curious. I wonder, you know, you, you said children needing that or modeling their parents' response to stress and that being a big factor in, in how they respond to things. I'm curious about children with chronic illness, chronic pain, and other conditions whose, whose parents are very hypervigilant um, and, and how that can affect their expression of pain, how they view it. And also leading into adulthood, I've seen a couple of studies. I think even, um, Dr. Drossman did a study back in the early nineties, looking at healthcare utilization rates in adults, um, based upon their illness, um, how they viewed their illness as a child or how they were treated when they were ill as a child. And I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, what, what you think about that and how that plays out in chronic pain in kids. Yeah, absolutely. So we have so much more evidence of that. Now I've done a lot of studies with Rona Levy and we've done actually, um, randomized control trials to show that if we change, uh, how parents handle their kids' pain that the yeah. kids do a lot better. And it's really interesting. So the example I often use is this one, and it's not abdominal pain related, but you can, you you know, it's it, it's something people see every, every day. So you go, you have a four-year-old, right? <laughs> and you go to a playground and in, inevitably they're going to fall, skim their knee, right? The first thing that they'll do is they'll sort of look up, look at the parent and won't start crying until they see the parent, right? Very, very yeah. sort of typical. And then, you know, if you, I, I really would love for anybody to do this if you're a playground, just to, to observe other, other uh, parents and kids' pairs. Then they go to the parents and here's what parents will do. They do one or two different reactions in general. They'll either pick them up, put them on their lap, hug them, apologize for it, kiss their pain. And the child will keep on crying and crying and crying. And it actually prolongs the whole episode. Then you have parents who sort of go like, oh, come here. They quickly sort of check the child out. They seem to be okay. They might brush it off. And then they go, oh, let's go look at the slides, right? Let's go do that. And the child gets distracted, goes to slide, and they stop crying. And so we know that this happens. We actually have evidence to that. It happens with chronic abdominal pain patients the same way. We know that kids tell us they like their parents to do the distraction thing. They like because it makes them feel better earlier. Right. But as parents, this is really hard for us because we need to be, we feel like we need to be very supportive, empathetic with our child, right? right. And right. and so and and we're supposed to be able to fix it, right? As parents, we're supposed to be able to fix it. But but the children don't like it as much. And even though we realize, we realize if we distract a child, it's better. We still have a hard time letting that go. And I think if you're a pain patient and you've been misunderstood and you've been, you know, told all the time that, you know, this isn't true, you're even more likely to do the sympathy and empathy thing, right? Because you don't want your child to grow up the same way. Yes. But, you know, children are just better off. What we need to realize as parents is that, 
our main job actually is not to take away all the pain and discomfort of our children. Our main job is to raise children into adults who know what to do when they're in pain and discomfort, right? That doesn't mean ignoring them pain and saying, toughen up, right? No, we're not adequate treating it. Yeah, we're not adequately treating it, right? We're going to do what we can do. But then our main role is to teach them coping skills. And what is a wonderful coping skill when you have pain is distraction. Doesn't matter if it's acute pain, doesn't matter if it's chronic pain, distraction is wonderful. So doing something else will take your mind off the pain and it really, really works very well. And uh, what we try to do with parents too, we say like, hey, we don't want you to completely give up this this empathy and sympathy you have for your child, but we want you to keep it to a minimum, like not all the time, every single time your child says, I might have a stomachache. Because when you do that to the child communicates, well, mom and dad are really concerned about this. Maybe I should be concerned about it too. And then they start paying more attention to the pain and becoming hypervigilant to the pain themselves. And that then they get in a cycle of noticing it more, worrying about it more, etc. So we want them to pay a lot of um, attention to the children when the children do something despite being in pain. So let's say, you know, Johnny had a stomach ache, really didn't want to go to soccer practice because I wasn't feeling well. And you say like, let's just go. Let's try it for 10 minutes, you know, and then we'll take a decision. Very likely Johnny will, after 10 minutes, has totally forgotten the pain and will be playing and come home and have had a good time and have had good social interactions with his friends, which are really important for Johnny, right? Pain can be very isolating. And so when Johnny comes home for the parents and to say, wow, Johnny, I am so proud of you. You went to soccer despite you not feeling well. And that is fantastic. And so you can give a lot of empathy and support and attention for you know, what we call wellness behaviors. And, and that right. really, really helps. We have, we have good evidence that that helps fantastically. But it's a mindset change and it's difficult. The yeah. other thing we tell parents to do, especially if you have pain yourself. So a lot of people with irritable bowel syndrome are kids who have abdominal pain issues. It runs in families. It's unfortunate sure. that that's what it is. Um, and so if you have your own pain is to model what you want the children to do when you have your pain. So if you have your pain and you just go, I'm just going to power through it, you know, I'm just going to. Like not complain about it, power through it. Yeah, it doesn't help your child at all because they just they don't know you're in pain because you're not complaining. They have no clue, right? Right. If if you are in pain, you go like, oh my gosh, my constantly being complaining about the pain, which is your total right. But if you do this constantly, and then you and then you go like, I really need to lay down. I can't make your lunch. I can't do this. I won't go to my you know, knitting circle or whatever it is you're going to do, right? Uh, then your child learns, that's what I should do when I have my own abdominal pain. I should sit down and really focus on it and not do any other stuff. But if you are somebody who says, gosh, I have my tummy just doesn't feel right today, but I'm going to go to work anyway, right? Or I'm going to go to this party anyway, and I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to give it a try. And, you know, if it doesn't work, then we'll come back home. That That is showing your child how to cope with the pain. And children are acute observers of their parents and what they right. do. And they learn a lot through what we call modeling. So you're modeling behavior to them. So it's sort of 
focalizing. If you're a person who's really, you know, does a lot with your pain, and it doesn't mean if your pain is terrible, yes, you need to lay down. I'm not saying that, right? Sure, sure, if your yeah. pain isn't very terrible and you power through, show your child, because otherwise, you know, verbalize it to your child, because otherwise your child only sees you when you're in pain, you're lying down. That's right. the only connection they make. But if you verbalize, I'm in a lot of pain, but I'm doing this anyway, they go like, oh, that's that's what you do first before you lay down. So yeah. Right. That's interesting. That's very good, good information for parents and and kind of counterintuitive um, than what we are kind of taught early on, at least myself as an early as a new mom, um, was, you know show your child all the empathy and sympathy you possibly can. So they know that they're loved and they're, you know, paid attention to, but I, I really love that idea that it's not our job to keep our children from being in pain, but teach them how to manage the pain. I think that's critical both physically and emotionally, because there's no way we can protect our children from every type of pain. So, no. um, so and when they great. grow up to be adults who don't know how to deal with setbacks and pain, yes. and, you know, it could be more than just pain. It, it, that really is a disservice to them too. Now, I don't want you to, to not show sympathy and empathy, sure. right? Absolutely. You still yeah. absolutely yeah. want you to show sympathy and empathy, but it doesn't have to be for a very long time, right? right? right. And, it, and, and uh, you can still teach coping skills while being sympathetic and empathetic yeah. to the child, yeah. That's great. So, so looking at treatment, you know, you talked about distraction as being a really good um, way to handle chronic pain or even acute pain many times in children. Um since there isn't a lot of available treatments for pain, at least abdominal pain in kiddos that is available, even a lot of the neuromodulators aren't recommended for anyone under the age of 18, which we would typically use in adult GI chronic pain. Um, what, what are the best management, uh, available for peds? Is it really just behavioral and like hypnosis and, and some of those, um, more psychological treatments? If you talk about where we have an evidence base, so we actually have done the studies. Yes, yeah. fortunately, <laughs> that's where evidence base is. That doesn't mean it's the only treatment. We we just don't have as much money to run studies in children. It's yeah. very hard to run very large studies in children. It's unethical a lot of times to run certain studies in children. And so um, we, we're missing the evidence base. We definitely do do other things, you know, if you, if, if for medical care. It's not just behavioral. Um, there are some neuromodulators that are prescribed to children. They're usually only prescribed by pediatric gastroenterologists who are comfortable with that, which are very hard to find. Yeah. <laughs> and because there's no evidence base, people get sort of concerned about doing it. But the people who are prescribing them say, you know, for a certain type of patient, this works really, really well. That is a first line treatment in children for sure. But for certain types of kids, this works really well. We do um, do dietary interventions. So said the BOTMAP diet is used in children, although we have no real good evidence from randomized controlled trials. But a lot of what we do in children, and not just for chronic pain, it's for children in general, I believe two-thirds or so, I would have to look up the actual number, but it's high. You know, it's in the 60 or 70% or so of all the medications that we use in children are used off-label. They have never yeah. been even 
um, tested in children. Sure. And um, that has many reasons. And one of them mostly being that pharmaceutical companies weren't required for a very long time to test them on children. Now they are, but it still takes a long time for then for the studies to come, often like five years or so after FDA approval for adults, maybe the kids' studies will be done. Um, but, you know, we do this off-label things for children all the time. It's not uncommon. It's not just for pain. And so we do have a full wide arsenal of what we're trying in children. The pro- Another problem in children is the placebo effect is even much higher in them. So it's even sure. harder to find. It's already very high in chronic pain patients in general, about 40%. Or so if people will respond to a placebo in adults and in kids, this can be well over 50%. And then it becomes really hard to show that any treatment is better than your placebo effect. Right. However, I have to say this, coming back to the behavioral treatments, often the behavioral treatments in adults are sort of kept for the people who haven't responded to other things. And yeah. I think in pediatrics, what we do more, we say we give the behavioral treatments first because... For children, we worry about side effects, right? We have to worry about side effects in children. We don't have good information about it. What about a growing child, you know, giving a medication for a long time? What is it doing to them? It's doing to their growth, their nervous system, all these things. And then secondly, kids hate taking medications. <laughs> they, they're not consumers of pills. They, they, they often think it tastes terrible. And so um, behavioral uh, approaches are often used as, as first line in children. And I just want to reassure parents that does not mean that we think you're the pain is all in your kid's head, right? We right. just know that helping you how to cope and helping children how to cope with pain is so important because it's not just the pain. It's how we respond to the pain, how we think about the pain, what we do when we're in pain. And we can bring so much quality of life back to you and your child if we teach you these skills. And they're so easy to learn and you will know them for a lifetime. You know, it, they're really gifts to any child, I would think, for later on when they're dealing with pain, they'll be like, I got this toolbox and I know what to do. So, okay. um, so we're grabbing earlier to behavioral treatments, perhaps than, than with other um, disorders. However, <laughs> here's another big however, it's even harder to find therapists who you know, specifically focus on GI issues in children than it is in adults. And access is yeah. already a big issue in adults. It's a huge issue in children. So I would say probably for the majority of children aren't treated at all. They're just going to be, they're just sent home with like nothing's wrong with your child. And that's the unfortunate state of where we're in. And parents, I've talked to many parents who sort of have given up. They'd be like, we've been to all these doctors. We've done everything. Just sort of given up. We don't know what to do anymore. There's nothing we can do anymore. And that's really sad. And that, shouldn't be happening, but um, something we as a field are working on <laughs> to make yeah. that better, to increase access, to do more sort of online treatments and apps and um, training more therapists to get to, you know, just get more people in uh, for treatment so that we have um, better treatment of child's pain. And really, there really should be no reason why a child should be suffering that badly where they're missing significant amounts of school, for example, over um, functional abdominal pain or bowel syndrome, we that really not should not be happening. <laughs> so yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious your thoughts on how a parent um, in that situation can best advocate for their child. You know, if there, if there is no access to these behavioral health treatments for them and they are told that there's nothing else that can be done, but yet they're, they're witnessing their child in, in pain, that's valid. Um, you know, how can they, how can they advocate, let's say with their child's school, with their teachers and administrators, because they may need to miss school occasionally, or they, you know, I'm just curious how to best handle that. Because I know a lot of parents that I've talked to, they kind of, they straddle this line between, is there really nothing wrong? And, and it is all psychological or and I would be, you know, I'm kind of feeding into this by mm-hmm. continuing to allow them to miss school and miss activities and lay on the couch when they don't feel well, or, or, or should I, you know, allow this and, and how do they best kind of make that decision and advocate? Right. So a lot of things in that question. Yeah. First of all, what I would recommend um, parents to do is to find the needle in the haystack mm-hmm of an MD who really knows how to treat these children. That's your first step. Get a diagnosis. A lot of kids have not gotten a diagnosis. We're recruiting currently for a study. And when we're asking, we know these people have this diagnosis in their medical records. And we ask the parents, do you know your child has this diagnosis? They go, no, they never even have been told this is the diagnosis. But get to somebody who knows how to approach this. That is your very, very first step. And honestly, for probably the vast majority of these families, enough. Because they they get the diagnosis, they get an explanation, they get assurance, you know, what's wrong with your child or not, right? Right. And and what to do. And for the vast majority of of families, that's enough. Now they know what to do. They're not Yeah, just like in adult care, you know, getting a diagnosis, we hear from so many patients was key for them being like, okay, now I know what's going on. And honestly, very therapeutic in itself. It is. Yeah. And now, you know, do I send them to school or not? Because now you know, now you know, Mm -hmm. right? Now you don't worry about, am I maybe ignoring some like really terrible disease or, you know, so, so, so very, very key. Um, These providers also, these, these pediatric gastroenterologists, usually pediatric gastroenterologists, you might find, you know, some, some primary care physicians who can do this, but not a lot of them. I know some of them, but usually they're pediatric gastroenterologists. They also know where to find resources and how to, you know, find those resources for you. It doesn't always mean they can get you into behavioral care. For example, you want to do that, but they know the resources. So for example, I developed a hypnotherapy protocol that actually is evidence-based. We know that it works. We've shown that in a randomized controlled trial, and I've shared it with hundreds of um, therapists all over the world um, who have the correct training and are, are interested in it. And if I get a parent who comes to me or comes to a physician that knows about me and everybody in this field knows my name, <laughs> they can come to me and they can email me and the therapist can email me and say like, Hey, I'm, I, you know, have this patient. I would really like to try this with them, but I'm not really, you know, sure about treating GI disorders. That's not my forte. I can send them this protocol and they can help. And so there are ways 
that this can happen, right? Without having maybe all the resources in your community. So finding that MD who can help you sort of figure this out is key. And I would say the Rome Foundation is great resources for this. So definitely contact them. The IFFGD is wonderful. You can contact them. The ANMS is wonderful. You can you can contact them. All of them will help you try to find these people. And I tell people, listen, maybe if you need to travel a little bit, if you have the opportunity to travel and you can do it and you have the money, invest in that. Go right. to that particular person and invest in it. Not possible for all parents, of course, but now with virtual care, there's a lot more possible, you know, doing it virtually. Um, but like if even if it you know you go like wow that's a, that's a lot of money it's a real big investment in your child and in your future for your family Absolutely. really so yeah. i highly highly recommend doing that then you know as far as the schools are concerned then that doctor can work with the schools because schools what schools often do when the child complains about abdominal pain and still send them home that's sort of the first reaction that will happen they'll just send the child home because they don't know. They don't know if yeah. this is something is to worry about or not. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Like they have no clue. So they'll send that down. And so the child is starting to miss a lot of school because the school's sending them home. It's not even the parents keeping them home. It's the school sending them home as well. And then, of course, it can be a lot of school absences when, you know, the child is just not able to return to school anymore. And um, working with that MD to set up, for, for example, 504 plans and things like that, it clearly lays out sort of the rules, if you want to say, you know, sort of guidelines on when to send them to school, when not, what to do, you know, to catch up with school and all those kind of things is incredibly helpful. If your child has a lot of school absences because of their pain, really, really, really try to get them help from a psychologist. Psychologists are trained on how to help you reintroduce your child to, to school, to a school setting. But before you do that, you need to get that you know diagnosis. You need to make sure that you know what it is, that you, you, right. know, you have guidelines from your doctor. And then you say, okay, here are the medical guidelines that we have. Now we can work with a psychologist. And then it doesn't have to be a GI trained psychologist. It could be any psychologist. And usually they're really, a school has many schools of school psychologists who are really good about um, dealing with how do we reintroduce a child back to school that has been out for many months even. And Schools are fantastic about this. They this is what they do all the time. Like they know how this works, and so it is um, something they will really collaborate with you about. So yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, I think sometimes we forget about the other um, school based programs like the school psychologist or some of the other faculty members, um, that you don't really think about until you need them. Um, yes. and so that's, that's good. A reminder of the other resources that could be available for your child. Um, you know, in adult care, we talk a lot about the importance of the patient provider relationship and the role that good communication plays in, in clinical outcomes. And I'm, I'm curious how you think that should look in pediatric care. Obviously the patient is a child, um, you know, at a certain point, the doctor does start transitioning their um, communication more towards the the patient as an adolescent, as opposed to the parent or caregiver. But but how can parents and pediatric patients be sure that they're communicating effectively with their provider in order to get the best care possible? 
So I would say probably this whole patient uh, communication thing is less of an issue in pediatrics than it is in adults, because pediatricians are sort of trained for looking mm. for the social aspects, right? They're, they're, it's gotcha. right in front of you. It's never a child by itself. It's always a child and a parent, right? So they, right. they know how to deal with that. Pediatrics is also really well set up to do this integrative care before it was a thing. So if you have kids with chronic diseases, like inflammatory bowel disease or chronic kidney disease or diabetes, they're often treated in teams because right. they know you can't just go, what happens to adults is like, oh, I think you need a dietitian. See, you. Good go luck. find one. Yeah, we'll, go find we'll one. figure yeah. out later if you did, did you go? No, you didn't. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Where, where in, in pediatrics, this traditionally has been more of a team approach where everybody works together um, on your child's treatment plan. Now, Unfortunately, for children with chronic pain, that hasn't really been available to them. There are very few and far in between um, actual chronic pain you know, programs where children can go in and, and get pain from multiple providers or help from multiple providers to help their pain. So it's sort of that, that, that's where the stigmatization comes into right. and, and it you know, filters into healthcare too, um, and then particularly for children. And so, um, but yes, communication is incredibly important. Um, communication between the parents and doctor initially when the children are smaller is incredibly important. And then over time, we actually find that it's hard for parents to let go of that role, right? They're, they let go of the caregiving role, let go of the, you know, I'm going to be making all your appointments. I get all your medications. I am the one talking to the doctor, you know, those kind of things. It's really hard for parents to let go. Um, and it's so important because as teens, again, it's sort of a developmental stage. They need to learn how to do this. And I know we we have, the, as parents of the best intentions, right? We're saying like, hey, but if my child with diabetes doesn't take, you know, his medication all the time or, you know, eats really high, you know, sweet sugary foods without taking their blood sugar, things can go really, really, really wrong. So I better be on top of it all the time. But that prevents them from learning it. So there needs to be, you need to find a balance there of what's happening. And in GI, we know that kids increasingly get more um, uh, secretive, I guess, about what happens <laughs> in the bathroom. So you have to ask the child, like, what's happening? How often do you go? What does your bowel movement look like? You know, these are not questions that parents can answer anymore. After probably the kids go to the bathroom by themselves. So it's a pretty young age where we start losing that information from the parents. So um, it communication is always a key to the game. But I think in pediatrics, it, it, it is just something that you grow up with as a pediatrician. Yeah. You do that really, really well. Yeah. At, at what point do you think, I mean, you said parents need to start letting go. At what point do you think parents should start allowing their adolescent child to see the doctor on their own, um, you know, not going with them to the actual visit and letting them handle, especially in acute cases, at, at what age do you recommend that? So uh, when we look at um, chronic, you know, illnesses in children, that's where we have most of the evidence for it. We really start talking about this when they're about 11 or 12 years old. That's when we start talking about, listen, the child needs to know 
what condition they have, the name of it, what sort of the restrictions are in their lives, what, you know, how do you prepare foods that you can eat or not eat? How do you uh, communicate with a doctor? How do you make an appointment? How do you get a refill at the pharmacy? You know, all these kind of things. So it's, so we, we start talking about that around sort of age 11 to 12. However, most children already come in with quite some, quite some knowledge at that point and quite some skills at that point. So I think it starts even earlier when children do get involved in their own care, you know, specifically if you have a chronic disease. Then as they're getting older, this increasingly needs to be their own thing. And, you know, anybody who has had a teen knows that the pediatrician at some point sent you out of the room because they want to talk about, for example, sexual health, right? Exactly. And in front of you. And so it's, it's a really natural time to also say to say, hey, I'm going to step back and I'm going to let my child answer most of the questions. So, so even even maybe when they're eight, right? You can have the physician ask a question, you can have the child answer first. And then you can add in information and color as your child, you know, might be forgetting things or misremembering things. Um, but setting it up from the very young age where the children get involved, they're not just sitting there as passive people going, well, these two are going to talk to each other and I'll just at some point, if to pull up my shirt, show my belly, and that's it, you know, but really be involved in that you can do from a very young age onwards. When to truly leave your child completely alone um, really depends on the child. It depends on what kind of condition they have. Uh, but I would say, you know, most children transition around the age of about 18 to adult care because they're going to college and right. all of a sudden they're not in hometown. And so you probably want to have your 17-year-old know all these skills and be right. able to go by themselves. So if you haven't done it when they're 16, definitely do it when they're <laughs> 17. <laughs> Good advice. I've done that for the past couple of years with both my kids. And it's it's kind of a an interesting um, process, shall we say. I, I, I can't say that I felt fully confident in their abilities to um, communicate effectively, but it got the job done and, and they've learned lessons on what they need to do better next time. So, so it is just part of that letting go process. Yep. And you can certainly um, talk with them before they go. Have you made a yes. list of questions you need to ask or a list of yeah, the symptoms good. you need to discuss? Are you really don't forget to do this or to do that or talk about this. And so, you know, all the advice we give to adult patients, like before you go to a doctor, make sure you have all your questions written down, make sure you, right. you know, you know, you get addressed what you need to address because a doctor often takes over the conversation right. and you're going into a certain direction and you get out of the office and you go, but, oh, wait, that Absolutely. I really needed to ask that. Right. And so having that list with you, is a good recommendation for adults. It's something that we can, again, teach our teens to do as well. Yeah. Um, I've done it from a very young age where my kids would be four or five and asking me about it. And I'm like, ask, ask them first. <laughs> you know, like, I, and she's wow. and often thought it was really weird that I did, but I wanted them to tell. Because oddly enough, my four-year-olds often told me things in the doctor's office I didn't even realize. Mm. And I would be like, oh, well, that would be very different from what I would have been telling you. And then I started asking questions about my children from my children to clarify what they meant. <laughs> and, it, and you learn a lot. That's interesting. Not, yeah. They just that you know, and you might not. So, wow. Yeah. But again, it's not what wasn't the main information the pediatrician was going to go on, right? It's still right. a four-year-old. <laughs> but yeah. 
But I've done that from a very young age. So they knew that's what is expected in, and, and they love it. They love that they're, you know, I'm a big boy or a big girl. And I, right, you know, sure. I, I'm involved in this and people are listening to me. And so, yeah. And I think it's important you're teaching those really good life skills and you're teaching them self-advocacy that a lot of adult patients don't have the skills. And we, you know, we mm-hmm. have to teach them through our work with the Rome Foundation as well on how to better advocate for yourself with your doctor. And if yep. you're able to kind of model it and also teach it as a child, you're not going to run into the same sort of issues that many adult patients encounter. So And your pediatrician, I've had pediatricians who weren't really open to this, who were just like, come on, we need to move, move here. I'm asking you, I'm not asking them. And I had to be like, no, I'm sorry. (laughs) This is their issue and they're going to answer you. And then we'll see if I have anything to add to that. Um, So you can be an advocate for your child and and then model with your child that the doctor is not necessarily one who's determining that, that conversation in that room right right i am able to push back and they'll right. accept it when i push back and that's a really good skill for them to learn as well so that as Definitely. you said later on in life when you're with a physician in the office they're not just gonna go like up and run away yeah. exactly <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah great tips any final thoughts that you'd like to share with providers or with parents or patients before we close I think we addressed a lot. If I had a magic wand, I would take away all the stigma and Mm -hmm. I would take away our cultural reliance on the biomedical model. So when you were talking to me about, well, in school, do you, do you send them to school or not? Is maybe something more going on? Can you just ignore it? Is it just all stress? It shows the biomedical model, right? If it's Mm -hmm. not in your body, it must be in your mind. If it's in your mind, it means you're crazy or you're stressed out. And nothing is further from the truth. It's not nothing is more further from the truth just for chronic pain, for any disease. Whether you have heart disease, diabetes, it doesn't matter. Our brain is always connected to our body. In fact, I've never seen anybody alive where their brain (laughs) wasn't connected to their body. So to sort of separate these two is really silly. Um, It does a big disservice to everybody. And unfortunately, that's what our culture still thinks. Um, still is based on, it was um, something devised by a 17th century philosopher. It wasn't even a medical doctor. And so I would just really hope that with education to people about the biomedical model is outdated. This is not how your body works. Um, As an anecdote, and maybe this is interesting, I I was seeing a new dentist um, last week and I am somebody who really doesn't feel pain too often which is a problem in and of itself. Too much right. pain is a problem. Not enough pain is a problem as well. Right. So one of the things is I cannot know if something's wrong with my teeth. So they always ask me, do you have any problems? And I told him because he was new, I said, that is not a question you can ask me because I won't be able to tell you because I've been in situations where I had major, major infections in my mouth and not a symptom. And he said, well, wow, you're really one of those stoic people. And this is the biomedical model because he is not believing me, right? Right. There's something medically going on with me. So I have to feel it. I'm just ignoring it. So I'm so stoic. And I was like, no, 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 no. I said, listen, I literally don't feel it. I really, really, I'm telling you, I really don't feel it. 
the minute I do start feeling pain in my mouth, I probably be the biggest wimp because I've never learned how to cope with it because <laughs> it doesn't happen. I said, so wow. if you ever do anything to me that makes me feel pain in my mouth, you probably have a nutcase on your, on your thing. And he was just looking at me like, this woman is really weird. But I was trying to tell to him, don't assume. Don't assume that even though you find something medically wrong with me, there's really big inflammation in your you know, teeth that, that I'm assumed that I must be feeling symptoms. Because right. we know that that's not true. That's not true for a lot of things. We know that there's almost no relationship between how many symptoms you have and how biologically your body, like how bad your inflammation is or how bad anything else is in your right. body. Uh, we know that that's not true. There's so much evidence of that, but we still assume it. So that would be my magic wand if I could. <laughs> yes. So we'll convert everyone to the biopsychosocial approach to patient care. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of work. Still yet to be done. So um, don't retire yet, uh, Dr. Van Tilburg. <laughs> uh, so thanks so much for joining us today. And um, if you have any questions for Dr. Van Tilburg, please send them my way. You can send us a direct message through Twitter, or you can email me at jruddy at therumfoundation.org and we'll get those answers for you. Join us again in February as our guests will be Dr. Lin Chang and we'll be talking about sex and gender differences in IBS expression, something that Dr. Chang does a lot of research and work on and we're excited to talk to her about that. Until next time, everyone, take good care and stay safe. Bye-bye now. Join us again next month for another episode of Tuesday Night IBS, and be sure to follow the conversation on our Twitter page at hashtag Tuesday Night IBS. We host live Twitter chats on the second Tuesday of each month at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time with our monthly guest and encourage you to join in the conversation. In addition, check out our page on Facebook at Tuesday Night IBS and find video presentations provided monthly by our guest experts to further guide our learning and conversation about these important topics. See you next month.